I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa Simone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on a recent but big change to Irish tax law. Today we welcome Bryant Grant, PhD candidate from Indiana University, to talk to us about an Irish law passed in 2014 that basically forced large U.S. multinational companies to stop shifting income from the U.S. and other higher tax jurisdictions to zero tax dot havens in the Caribbean. Today's episode, Brian will walk us through the mechanics of the Irish tax law change and how U.S. multinationals responded. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. I'm excited today because we are welcoming another PhD student to talk about their dissertation. And this is just like fun for us to get to talk to PhD students. They're on the cutting edge of research. They've been spending so much of their lives on this one research topic, which is their dissertation. And that's kind of like what we do for fun is talk about research and we get to talk about it with a student who's super excited about their research topic. No, it's It's pretty cool. It's pretty great. And we've got an added benefit today because we're going to be talking about tax avoidance. Yes. Uh, We're going to talk about multinational tax avoidance. My favorite. And although you love it, I love it. It's maybe not the most like scintillating topic. Says who? Exactly. Um, The masses. I think the masses say that maybe it's not the most the most uh, interesting topic. And we are here to change that. We are, because if I'm going to say something about this particular strategy that we're going to talk about today, I'm going to say that it has really good marketing. Say more words. So the name of this tax strategy that is at the crux of this whole thing. Yes. Is the double Irish. It sounds kind of dirty. So I always thought it sounded like a cocktail. Oh, I like that. Okay. Okay. What is in your, what is in the double Irish? This is the topic of today's conversation. So I think we should both take a minute to advance (laughs) the literature and. Yes. I mean, it's got to have Bailey's in it, right? I agree. I think. And I don't want to be too obvious, but it has to. And I think what came to my mind when I thought about this is you want, you want a double Irish. You want many things that are Irish. I'm going to give you a triple Irish. Bring it. I think it's more affectionately known. This is not, this is not PC, but it's an Irish car bomb, right? So it's Guinness, okay. uh, Bailey's to your point, And then a shot of Jameson Irish whiskey. So we've, we've got a triple Irish that already exists. Okay. So, all right. Clearly the world was already ahead of us and we've got, we've got a, a cocktail that will suffice. So, oh, and it's got a an double idea. Irish tax bomb. Okay. It's more PC than an Irish car bomb. It's a yes. double Irish okay. tax bomb. Yes. So we've just renamed the drink. This is going to catch on. It's a thing. And we're going to get paid for it. Absolutely. So maybe we should explain what the double Irish in reality actually is. We're going to stop talking about alcoholic beverages. Well, we could be drinking alcoholic beverages while we explain what the double Irish is. Uh, we could. All right. So other than a questionable uh, alcoholic beverage that will probably make you sick, what is the double Irish? So as the name implies, the double Irish is a structure that entails two different entities, each of which is incorporated in Ireland. So they're both Irish incorporated companies, but both companies are not taxed by Ireland. So the way they get around this is that under Irish tax law, in order to be taxed by Ireland, it's not that you are incorporated in Ireland, which is the way we tax companies, right? If you're a U.S. incorporated company, the U.S. is going to tax you. In Ireland, they don't care about where you decided to file the paperwork. What they care about is where your management is located. 
And so under the double Irish structure, you incorporate two Irish companies. One company owns the other. And the that company that's the owner has its management outside of Ireland. So Ireland isn't going to tax it. But because it was incorporated in Ireland and not incorporated in the U.S. or another country, the U.S. and other countries also aren't going to tax it. And bada bing, bada boom, you just ended up with a company that is not tax resident anywhere. It's not going to be taxed anywhere. Reasonable person might ask, why does Ireland have this structure in place where they have a company that's incorporated in Ireland, but they're not going to get to tax any of the profits of the company? And the reason is Ireland for a very long time, for many, many years, decades, in fact, has been very interested in attracting foreign investment from uh, often U.S. multinationals. And that investment isn't just investing in facilities and you know tangible assets in Ireland, but also employing people in Ireland. So the reason you need that second company in that double Irish structure is that you need a company that actually employs people in Ireland in order for Ireland to kind of look the other way about all the profits that are going to be reported by the top entity, which are not going to be taxed in Ireland. The reason all the profits go to the top entity is that the top entity typically is the one that owns the intellectual property. And this whole thing basically works because of the intangible property that you just said. We can easily move that IP around the world wherever we want. And so the way that Mm -hmm. we're able to shift the profits, like you said, is most typically through a royalty payment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So essentially this is a base erosion and, and profit shifting tool, and it was targeted at U.S. multinational companies. Mm-hmm. So if we get in our Wayback Machine, the rate in the U.S. used to be 35%. Mm-hmm. What you just described, you can almost get down to 0%. Very close to zero. So, you know, if we're going to put some numbers to it or use a company that we all are familiar with, Apple is sort of the poster child for this. For many reasons. (laughs) For many reasons, which we'll get to in a second. So Apple works, like Lisa said, to develop new technology in the U.S. They get it almost to the point of viability, but it's not quite viable. So we can't really price it because we don't know if it's going to work or not. And then we basically sell that IP from Apple U.S. to this Irish sub for a pretty modest amount. So we're not Mm -hmm. recognizing a big fat gain in the U.S. Which would be taxable at 35% in the U.S. So we don't want to do that or we're undermining the whole thing. That top Irish sub now owns the IP and can charge um, a royalty out to that second Irish sub every time they sell an iPhone or an iPad or an Apple Watch or what have you. Yep. So if this sounds bad, obviously not for Apple, but for maybe the US or other uh, countries that are interested in not having their uh, tax base eroded, you're right. Yep. Um, So by some descriptors, this is the the double Irish is the largest tax avoidance tool in the history of tax avoidance tools. Mm Mm-hmm. There are some estimates that um, U.S. companies were able to shield over $100 billion of profits every year from U.S. taxation as a result of doing this. Uh, Before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, if you tried to bring that money back home, the U.S. would say, thank you very much. We're going to collect our 35 percent. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the way to indefinitely avoid Mm -hmm. that 35 percent U.S. tax rate was to just never bring the money back home and reinvest or just have it sitting in financial assets overseas. Yeah. So this was sort of adding insult to injury. Not only was the U.S. not getting to tax the revenue when it was earned, the the associated cash, the cash associated with those profits was not being brought back into the U.S. And Correct. so by some estimates, these large U.S. multinationals had over $3 trillion with a T 
of what we called trapped cash, cash mm -hmm. that was associated with these shifted profits sitting overseas that they really didn't want to bring back to the US because they were gonna incur that tax. So there's some argument that that meant maybe inefficient investment overseas, reduced yep. investment in the US. Um, this just wasn't a good situation all around. And largely uh, created all of the right incentives in place for Congress to change it in 2017 with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. You're 100% right. U.S. in 2017 was finally like, okay, enough is enough. June 2014, um, the European Commission for Competition opened an investigation of Apple, Starbucks, and Fiat on behalf of the EU Commission arguing that this double Irish um, among some other strategies, but specifically we're talking about this double Irish and how it was a form of illegal state aid to Apple. Yes, Margaret Vestager. She directly challenged the tax practices of some of the EU member states like Ireland. Um, what the competition laws basically say is, you know, the European Union, the whole premise of it was to create an open market, a single market where all the countries um, didn't have borders on financial transactions, on movement of people, on movement of anything between the countries. Um, and so she basically used this notion of illegal state aid that a country would be subsidizing the operations of certain companies, basically giving them a, what was called a selective advantage. So they got a tax advantage from this and it was selective in the sense that it was only available, they argued, to a select number of multinationals. So Apple is the big case that, um, that really uh, got a lot of attention. It wasn't the only company that they went after as a part of their investigations, but they basically said that an agreement that Apple had entered into with the Irish tax authority that allowed them to have a double Irish type of structure where the vast majority of profits were shifted outside of Ireland, not taxed by Ireland. This was deemed to be a selective advantage and therefore illegal state aid that Ireland offered to Apple that not every single company trying to do business in the EU or do business in Ireland could get. So in August of 2016, after about a two year investigation, uh, it was announced that the determination was made that Ireland had indeed granted illegal tax benefits to Apple. According to the European Commission. Yep. And uh, the commission ordered Apple to pay 13 billion euros plus interest in basically unpaid Irish taxes from 2004 to 2014 to Ireland. And Apple didn't like that. Apple didn't no. want to have to pay 13 billion euros in back taxes and interest and all of that. And interestingly, Ireland didn't like it very much either. Nope, and and that I think is one of the most interesting parts of this. So can you talk a little bit about more? Because if, if someone knocked on my door and offered me 13 billion euros, I would just say yes. Um, so why is it that Ireland was not too in, in too much of a hurry to collect those taxes? And it, it all goes back to a very longstanding practice that Ireland had that I mentioned before, which was they cared about investment and employment. Please come invest here and do business here. And that had grown the economy so much over the last 30, 40 years that that trade-off that they were making of foregoing the corporate tax revenues was being paid you know, multiple times over in income taxes by the employees and property taxes for those mm -hmm. who came over and bought a home, uh, the businesses who built, you know, they rejuvenated an entire part of Dublin that um, really had been underappreciated and underinvested in. And so 
Ireland uh, had seen the successes of its policies for the last several decades and did not want all of these multinationals to pick up and leave as a consequence of suddenly, you know, collecting a whole bunch of taxes from them. So it's a pretty good reason to appeal because to your point, income taxes aren't the only way that countries get revenue from corporations. In fact, they're a relatively small way. Apple and Ireland banded together. They appealed the decision. And in July, 2020, the European General Court actually struck down uh, the EU's decision as illegal and wound up ruling in favor of Apple. Which was a pretty big win. So, okay, European Commission says that, you know, this double Irish is illegal. Apple appeals, the European General Court strikes it down. Is there any way that we can get rid of this double Irish? I'm hoping our guest is going to let us know. I think he might have something to say about that. Brian, welcome to Taxes for the Masses. Thank you for having me. Thanks for uh, keeping up this this great tradition that we have of having some of our PhD students talk about their work. Thank you for doing that. Kudos. Well, thank you guys for having me. Excited to be here. Okay. So um, we, we talked a little bit at the top of the episode about what a double Irish is. Talk to us about the setting that you're exploring in your dissertation. What is this Irish tax law that you're looking at and what did it do um, to that double Irish tax planning strategy? All right, so the exact law I'm looking at is called the Irish Finance Act of 2014, and it was passed in response to international criticism of the double Irish structure. Uh, In particular, it was after the U.S. Senate called in Apple to discuss the the details of the double Irish structure. And in response, the the act essentially shut down uh, the double Irish, which is where firms were shifting profits to countries where they had very few operations, typically in a country like Bermuda, uh, which are sometimes known as dot havens. And some policymakers even called the act unambitious because it allowed firms using the double Irish in 2014 to continue to do so until the end of 2020. So I'm looking at this setting to see where firms decide to report profit after they exit this double Irish structure. They didn't want to be the first mover, but they were getting a lot mm. of pressure in the in, uh, from these other countries to say, okay, Uh, Well, we're going to change something. And in particular, Mm -hmm. they were more worried about the U.S. creating their own law. And uh, 10 percent of Ireland's workforce is employed by U.S. multinationals. So they were concerned if the U.S. made our own law that they could end up wiping out those those jobs that they had in Ireland. So the economists actually told Ireland, hey, it'd be best to move first on this. Interesting. Okay, so that's what Ireland was expecting could happen if the U.S. changed their law. What do you expect? How how do you think firms would would respond? What was your prediction in response to this Irish change, given that they decided to be the first mover here? So my initial reaction was going to be that firms were going to just increase the profits in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Last month, there was a Wall Street Journal article that came out and said, hey, Ireland has won the global tax game. So yep. I was thinking, okay, well, at the very baseline, it's going to be Ireland, but did any other countries benefit as well? A nice theory paper says all countries should benefit when we shut these these types of dot haven structures down. Um, so that's really where I moved with my research question to say, okay, what other countries have benefited uh, okay. from doing this? Okay, so your research question, if I can uh, paraphrase, is essentially once this benefit of this double Irish goes away and you no longer are going to enjoy this big fat tax benefit 
of shifting your profits to a dot haven where are you going to report the profits instead? Cause they got to go somewhere. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about, because you spent quite a bit of time in international tax practice of some big four accounting firms. So based on what you know about companies and how they make these decisions, um, what did you expect? Where do you think companies would shift the profit and what kind of analysis would go into that decision? So I was expecting that they would put a lot of the profits into the lowest tax country. However, I was thinking as well that there are a lot of costs that go along with this. And in the global environment, you need to have employees, real investments in these countries to be able to support these profit allocations. So I was also thinking that the U.S. would be a big uh, beneficiary of this. So there's a paper that shows two thirds of the economic activity in, in these dot havens is performed in the U.S. So I was thinking that would be the real country that would be the um, the next best winner. And then um, potentially maybe Ireland's getting all of this uh, publicity because they're a small island country. So when big changes happen in the economy, the macroeconomic adjustments happen and they're very large. Um, so after Apple moved out of the structure, that was in 2014, the GDP in Ireland went up by 25%, uh, leading to economists to call it leprechaun economics. I think I practice leprechaun economics. That's what I'm going to call my uh, my frugality. We're going to return that leprechaun economics. Okay, sorry, oh, continue. Dear. Your frugality is, yeah, a whole other episode. Brian, how did you test your research question? So um, the first thing I did was identify firms that are using this structure. And then I applied uh, different profit shifting models from the tax literature in order to find out where they reported profits once they shut these down. So you're you're slow rolling a little bit here because... Um, identifying these firms has been something that I think tax researchers have been interested in for mm -hmm. a really long time. The Senate was obviously really interested in this, like you said, when they called Apple and some other companies forward to testify. Um, but this is not information that is in public companies, U.S. financial statements, right? Or else we would have known about it by now. So you had to get a little creative to track these data down. Where did you find these data? So the Irish government has actually required firms to have these financial statements for a long period of time uh, since the early 2000s. And then they became more and more publicly available um, beginning in 2014. And I, uh, to be frank, so I was using a, a very rough proxy and then I was trying to convince you of this actual thing. And it's people may know that's <laughs> Good very luck to with do. that. <laughs> So after what? a couple of months, I found these financial statements that explicitly said it, um, and you have to purchase them from the Irish government directly. Um, so I was able to receive a research grant to do so. Um, so you worked hard. Yeah, it sounds it, it was hard work and it was expensive. You had been, you basically had to pay off the Irish government to get the information. Uh, good for you. Um, that's leprechaun economics, by the way. Yes. <laughs> but it sounds like it was, uh, you know, it, it, it paid off because that's um, you, there are other measures out there in researchers have been trying to identify this for a while. And there are measures out there that try to indirectly identify this. And that's great that you found a way to more directly get at it. Oh, thank you. Talk a little bit about what you found. Yeah, so I found that the profits are increasing in, in Ireland. So a recent Irish study came out and said that 10 U.S. multinationals pay over 50% of the corporate tax receipts in Ireland. Wow. And then using my data, I identified eight of those firms as previously using the double Irish. So it's mm. very clear just looking at these that these firms have increased in Ireland. So then I moved mm -hmm. over and started looking at the U.S. as well. And as I was expecting, the U.S., the province have also increased. Um, 
substantially in the U.S. And that where I really didn't expect to find it was in the foreign affiliates. And I actually am still finding that the, these U.S. multinationals have increased the profits in their foreign affiliates as well, but not as substantially as in the U.S. So the average U.S. or the average double Irish firm increased the profits in the U.S. by one billion dollars after exiting the wow. structure and then the, the foreign affiliates um, much less so, but it, it's statistically significant. So Ireland won a lot and that's what the Wall Street Journal article was was alluding to uh, a, a few weeks ago. Um, and so you validate that the US won, it sounds like a lot also. A lot, yeah. yeah. Other countries where there are actual operations appear to have won a little bit. So who lost here? So if anyone say, I would want to say the firms, but at the same time, the effective tax rate <laughs> of the fair. firms have been decreasing since uh, all these other legislations. So the average effective tax rate when the act was in place in 2014 uh, was about 26% mm -hmm. for my sample. And now they're at 19% um, because of the TCJ as well. So the firms have, they're still doing okay. Um, yeah. But really it came. I directly. guess. Yeah. So, you know, if you think that, these firms suddenly have to start paying tax on a lot of these profits. They were shifting to basically zero tax dot havens, as you said. And so now they have to, have to actually pay tax, but the statutory rate in Ireland's 12 and a half percent, that's not too shabby. And even though you said, you know, a lot more profits are being reported in the US, we changed the rate from 35% down to 21%. So not nearly as bad as it would have been a few years ago to report all those profits in the US. So yeah, I, I think I agree with your takeaway that, <laughs> Uh, the big the big losers here were the multinationals, but they didn't they don't seem to have lost all that much. Yeah, exactly. Ireland shut this down in 2014, but gave firms till 2020 to exit. Right smack dab in the middle of that is the TCJA, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And like Lisa said, one of the things it did was reduce the corporate rate from 35 to 21. The other thing it did is implement this new deduction, which you just referred to, FITI, a deduction that U.S. companies can get for their income that's derived um, from foreign sales related to their intangible assets, essentially. So it's basically saying if you're a U.S. company and you sell into a foreign jurisdiction, sales that are related to IP, we won't tax you at 21%. We're only going to tax you that 13%. Do you think you would have found your same results if Ireland had not been so, um, what did you say, unambitious? Unambitious, they yeah. So they had said in 2015, you have to exit. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yes, if, if they had been a little bit more ambitious and they had said, you got to get out by 2015 before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, do you think you would have found the same results? Do you think you would have seen that income coming back to the U.S.? I expect that it would have been statistically significant, but economically much less so. So you would have seen an increase, but, but not very much. Yeah, because most of my firms left in the final two years of of being able to do with many of them waiting until the last day. It seems like every day something is changing in the international tax landscape. Um, the, the next big thing coming down the pipe would be a global minimum tax that's being adopted by much of Europe, uh, including Ireland as part of the European Union. Do you think there will be an impact as a result of Ireland getting rid of the double Irish structure? When the US and Ireland have essentially had the same effective tax rate, I'd expect a very large amount of profit to return to the US uh, which is consistent with some of the JCT, the Joint Commissioner on Taxation estimates. Unfortunately, just difficult to get Congress behind anything, uh, but it does seem like a slam dunk. If you're saying if we were to adopt the uh, global minimum tax, yeah. yeah, big big if if in if in big if. capital letters, yeah, 
Brian, thanks so much. Oh, thank you guys. All right, now get back to work. So it's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the good is pretty easy here. Uh, We started our episode talking about it, right? It is fun talking to PhD students about the cutting edge research that they are doing. And I like this one was just like a a double Irish win (laughs) for me in that it happened to be about one of my favorite topics. I mean, and, and we came up with a cocktail. We did. How amazing is that? It may have already existed, but we renamed it at the, at worst we renamed a cocktail. We are, re- we are re- renaming the Irish car bomb the uh, double Irish tax bomb. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time we, uh, we, we came up with interesting names for things. No, not at all. Um, another good, I really do believe it's true. I think that this is something that's been kicked around enough in the media, like Wall Street Journal, New York Times, several news outlets have talked about the double Irish, um, but it's always kind of complex to get your head around because of all of the moving parts. And so I think in keeping with the mission statement of this podcast, it's nice to take something that has gotten its uh, fair share of coverage in the tax press and, and try to break it down a little bit. Yep. We hope. We at least hope. We tried. On to the bad. Oh, wait. You have more. I good. have one more good, and and we don't usually do this, but have you been drinking? Ha- have you been drinking the Irish tax I, bomb? I did. I had a triple Irish tax bomb before we started. Um, I th- I think Brian's results are kind of interesting because they are. I think I think what we want as tax policymakers, as economists and tax economists and 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 public finance people, is we want companies to report their profits where the economic activity is. Yeah, we don't want tax incentives distorting where we're reporting our income. And I think what Brian's results are sort of alluding to is that when you clamp down on these things and you take away some of these really, really big tax incentives, maybe companies, I I don't think his results are saying that it's eliminated, like nobody's doing any tax avoidance anymore, but his results are consistent with an increase in profit being reported in places where multinationals have actual operations, employees, buildings, plants, things of that Mm -hmm. nature. And so I Mm -hmm. think that his results are sort of speaking a little bit to a good. I agree with that. On the bad side, it is it is very interesting to me that after all of this, after the uh, illegal state aid investigations, there have been a lot of changes to the way the international community views corporate tax. And that's put a lot of pressure on Ireland. It's interesting, I'm going to say possibly a bad, that somehow Ireland has come out winning once again from all of this. Yeah, it, it's true. And I guess if we'll just, you know, go into the ugly and I'm, I'm going to take probably a, a contrarian point of view, but when you tell the story about the Irish economy, and I think they refer to it as the Celtic tiger, right? From the, you know, late eighties, early nineties, yep. one could look at it as a success story. A country is using something that it can control. It's corporate income tax rate. And it's pulling that lever yep. to attract investment to get that tax revenue from other sources that allows them to basically rebuild their economy from a very bad place. Like Ireland was not in a great place in the 80s when they Mm -hmm. kind of got this idea. And when we start talking about the global minimum tax, what we're talking about is taking, I don't want to say taking away, but severely limiting countries' ability to pull that lever to get the same sort of influx of investment that Ireland did. And now we're coming in and, and maybe, maybe it is Ireland's fault. Maybe we can just blame the Irish. Like maybe Ireland took it too far and now we're taking the opportunity away from other developing nations. And what do you think about that? 
I think it's a fair point. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about how it's, it's right there in the name of the base version profit shifting initiative is led by the OECD, which is the organization of economically developed countries and the G20. And there has been a fair bit of talk about how it's the developing countries that really haven't had as much of a seat at the table. They haven't had a voice in a lot of these changes that we're talking about. It's a fair complaint by the developing countries hey, what Mm -hmm. about us? You got to where you are now through this tax competition and all the levers that you've been able to pull. And now you're not going to let us do the same thing. And I don't have the solution, but it it is like taxes are a zero sum game, right? We all have to share the pie. And uh, all right now, all the rich countries have been arguing over their piece of the pie and the developing countries don't even get to see the table. This really was a perfect episode. We're talking about, um, Irish cocktails and pie. <laughs> Love it. Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of taxes for the masses. <laughs>